Welcome to Alien Theorist Theorizing. Theorist in the Desert. Uh, in This is the third uh, interview in our Theorist in the Desert theories. Uh, I'm Braden. I'm Zell. I'm Dan. And I'm Andrew. And we have special guest, Dr. Mike Masters. Uh, yep, yeah, we're here with Mike, and uh, he is a professor of biological anthropology, and he specializes in human evolutionary anatomy, archaeology, and biomedicine. And we're here to explore with him uh, some of the persistent long-term biological and cultural trends in our own evolution that could perhaps result in us being the ones who are piloting UFOs. Awesome. Thank- thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be uh, great to be here with you guys. Uh, so let's get right into it. What obviously this is a a unique field you're in. So what's the catalyst that got you started? Like how did you go down this avenue of exploring ETs as us from the future? Yeah, it actually uh, started when I was pretty young. I was about eight years old and overheard my dad telling a story about a UFO that he saw not too long before I was born. And um, yeah, it was kind of your standard UFO encounter. It was in uh, a nighttime thing. He was out on a call. He was a veterinarian, had somebody with him too in the truck and um, just saw this bright light over the horizon. This is in the middle of Amish country, so there's no lights anywhere. And uh, all of a sudden, this light just shot toward him and hovered probably about 100 meters off the ground or so and then shot back across the horizon and then straight up into the sky tremendous rate of speed and uh he got the book communion by whitley streber not long after that and uh i remember looking up and seeing that on the shelf and uh just having this kind of mental image with a early hominin or a chimpanzee like creature a modern human and then this quintessential alien with the big head the big eyes the small face and uh i just kind of started wondering if there could be a connection some sort of phylogenetic relationship so started uh going down that rabbit hole and um after many years of of college and research and writing decided to uh put it all into a book so published the book a couple years ago i think it was march 2019 and um yeah it's been a a wild ride ever since in that book for people who don't know is identified flying objects yeah, that's right. Identified flying objects. Um, this kind of takes a multidisciplinary approach, looks at uh, anthropology, obviously, astrobiology, physics, astronomy. And, and yeah, it looks at this question of whether or not these uh, UFOs and the aliens could just be us from the future coming back to study their own past. Pretty much the same way I would as an anthropologist if I had access to that technology. Oh, man. I love that theory. We've we've bre- we've touched on it before, but we obviously don't know that much about it. So, for someone who's just getting into this, how do you how do you bre- like broach the topic of like bringing this to someone? Like how how do you explain us us like ETs as us from the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things that make sense in the context of this model. What I've sort of dubbed the extratempestrial model. Um, but especially just looking at our anatomy and the changes that have taken place over the last six to eight million years. And most notably, in uh, human evolution, our craniofacial anatomy has changed, especially throughout the last 800,000 years. And primarily, we've seen this trade off between our brains and our faces. So, our brains 
have expanded, not just forward out over the eyes, but also mediolaterally. Uh, we've gotten a more globular neurocranium, as we say. And as that happened, our faces have shrunk back and the whole mid and lower facial area have completely refigured. So, and, and these changes have taken place regardless of where we lived, what the social or economic or political system was. They're just these really enduring trends throughout human evolution. So if those continue, regardless of whether we live in space or on the moon or wherever, we're likely to still have that same uh, cranial facial configuration and the same trend occurring in the same ways as it has throughout this very long period of time. So really just connecting the past to the present and then projecting that into the future, we're very likely to look like these beings that are so commonly described with the, the big heads, the big eyes, the small faces, the lighter skin. Um, and obviously there's a lot of variation the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free Foundation, their uh, study showed that that most are described as human or humanoid. Uh, and then you have the grays, the tall grays, the short grays, and only about 5% are reptilian or insect. And we know those so are from if, the middle if, of the earth. So that's already accounted for. Of course, yeah. Those those <laughs> yeah. come from from the center of the earth. And, and so they're pretty rare. Um, but the fact that they're so commonly described as being upright walking which is the trait that defines us, bipedalism. Uh, they have bilateral symmetry, five digits on each hand and foot, two arms, two legs. They're, they're human in every sense of the word. Many are described as human, right. about 45 to 50% based on their study of over 3,000 uh, contactees were described as human. So really, in the context of our, our evolution and where we're likely going, I think there's a strong case to be made that if these beings are being reported, and they have human characteristics. They're either from a different timeline, another dimension per, per se, or from our future in a block time context, block universe model. Right. So just like uh, extrapolating on how humans have evolved into sightings of these ETs being this like, if you were to take us in 10,000 years, that's probably something what we'll look like. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to put an exact number on it, but if we're talking about the ones that look altogether human um, and speak vocally to us. And there's a lot of cases like that, a uh, couple that I'm writing about in my new book. There's, uh, it, it could only be a couple hundred years, honestly. If we're talking about the ones that still look like us, but are speaking telepathically, I'm guessing that's probably something that happens right. a little bit later. If we're talking about the grays, talls and the tall and the short grays, yeah, then we're probably looking at tens of thousands of years. So it really just depends on what group uh, we're, we're, we're referencing. But, and, you know, that would account for, there's a, you know, I, what pops into my head is there has been a couple of encounters where, you know, people describe of seeing like a very female-like, uh, humanoid, very human-like with like a blend, right? Where you, you always hear about that human hybrid, but yeah. maybe that's just not too far right. in the future of what we're looking like. That's the stepping stone from us to that, to then further on, uh, moving on. Absolutely. Yeah. In the book, I refer to that as temporal ancestry. So we don't really use the term race anymore. It doesn't have any biological validity. Um, but we, we can talk about geographical ancestral groups. So people that are African-American obviously have ancestral roots in Africa, uh, East Asians, Europeans, Native Americans. So yeah, in the context of, of what you're referring to, with this temporal ancestry, it's the same thing as geographic ancestry, but if they're coming back from different points in our future, and most likely once we have this technology to travel backward in time, we're going to have that 
throughout our future. It's not something that'll just disappear, kind of like fire and agriculture. We just keep doing it and uh, improving upon it. So, yeah, I mean, you could be theoretically picked up by somebody 100 years in our future later that night by one of these grays from 10,000 years in our future. And, and it's still the same phenomenon. It's still the same time travelers just from different points in, in our evolutionary future. Right. So that make that would that would account for like the different different shapes and you know descriptions of the ETs that people experience either in abduction or sightings. Yeah, I think so, and 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 helps kind of explain why most of them are are more human too. Um, the the further out we have this aspect in archaeology, where the further back in time you go, you have less material available. It's sort of a temporal sample bias, you could say. So when we have beans and maybe these reptilians and insects like beans are just so far from our future that we don't even recognize their humanness right. anymore. And we would expect that to be a lower percentage if they are that far away, just because we are a blip on their screen. We're one of, you know, many, many different periods that they could explore. So we wouldn't expect to see them as much as we would ones that are somewhat closer to us in time, I guess. Cool. I like that theory. So as abductions go the reason they're the reason people are being abducted and I, abducted i guess would be in your in your theory scientific like it, trying to see how your ancestors what like what they ate how they lived kind of thing or how what what do you think about that well i mean i i have to acknowledge my own biases in that respect because i'm an anthropologist i'm a paleoanthropologist specifically so my interest is in the human past so yeah, this, I certainly would acknowledge that there's many, many different things they could potentially be doing and reasons for doing it, but it does seem to be very similar to what I would do if I had access to this technology. Like I've worked on digs in South Africa and France throughout the United States, and we're trying to piece together our past with um, fossils, with teeth, and there's just not much to go on. If we could actually pick them up, we could not only learn so much more about them, uh, their their DNA, their living tissues, but also their culture, their language. So it would really allow us to have a, a much deeper insight into the human past. So it, it kind of seems that that's a big focus. And, and these abductions are rare. I mean, a lot of people see UFOs in the sky, but it seems like they're only really allowed to interject themselves in this overt way for a scientific investigation. It seems like they're always trying to kind of remain hidden, but they come down and, and physically pick us up, uh, probe us in every way, take semen, take eggs, take developing fetuses. So if all these things are happening the way people describe, those rare instances are potentially the only thing that they're allowed to do um, for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, it does seem to have some sort of scientific or uh, research objective. So I'm wondering, like, do you think maybe instead of obviously going after a cadaver, because that'd be much easier for them. They go, they're going after, like they, they have the ability to go after live people because their tools aren't as, you know, as evasive. Yeah, that's a good, good point. I mean, it does seem like living tissue is of utmost importance and not just with us, like with the mutilations. And it's, it's not just cows, um, seals. There's a big string of horses in France that were just subjected to this same sort of thing. So yeah, for whatever reason, it seems like uh, living individuals, both human and non-human, are, are more of the focus. But yeah, that's a good point. Like, why not just show up at a funeral <laughs> home and rip somebody out of a yeah. casket and you know take them up? It'd be a lot less traumatic for them if they're already dead. It's a good point. Pretty pretty traumatic for the family. <laughs> yeah. funeral, I guess. Be one for the books for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
<laughs> See, I like that when you said like they don't really you know have much contact with us, and because when we've talked about that, some people that listen to our show will say like, "Well, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they contact us?" I'm like, "There's humans on this earth who the rest of us have been like, just leave them, <laughs> leave them in the forest. That's their way, and like, just we're not going to contact them." And it's you think about it like that. So it's like, if that's just us in the future and these are the, you know, the brightest minds, it would make a lot of sense to me that they would practice these same things that we do now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people make the comparison with uh, tagging a rhino or any sort of animal that we shoot with the dart and, you know, do all these things to it. It probably describes that to its rhino friends the same way that we do when we get abducted. Like, you know, we're sedated, we come out of it with this foggy memory, and we know things happen to us, but we're not exactly sure what our butthole <laughs> hurts, and that's about all we can really say. Um, but yeah, I mean, we start to get those memories back, and and they're consistent. Like, there's so much consistency across these reports, and, and I think that's really important to acknowledge. It indicates that it's the same people doing the same types of things throughout a very long period, and, and something that doesn't get mentioned very often either is you have these lifelong contactees like Terry Lovelace, for instance, who see the same individual his entire life, but they don't age. Mm. That's a very good point. And, and there's a number of cases like that. And if they're not aging, it indicates that there's this, and oftentimes it seems like there's an ambassador with Terry Lovelace. It was a woman that he described as sort of a shorter Chinese looking woman. Um, but if you think about it in the context of time travel, like the last interaction they had with him, I'll just use this as an example because I'm already talking about it, but there's others like it. Um, they, they come back, they check up on him, you know, 20 years later, but that could be the next day for them. Mm. If they're just visiting a different point in time to sort of follow up and, you know, do more tests or find out whatever it is they're trying to find out, it would help explain why they don't age, but we do if they're just popping in and out of different points in our lifetime. So to your, to speak on your point about the abductions, that these are relatively rare, but we still have hundreds, if not thousands of cases of people reporting, uh, alien abductions. Why is it? I would, I would assume, or at least I've not heard of that many, uh, a lot of these abductions don't happen to what you could kind of describe as like high end humans. It's not Olympic athletes. It's not, um, you know, people who would be considered heads in their field, whether it's medical or, you know, yeah. theoretical physicists or things like that. Like, why do you think that it's just these uh, most of the time it's just your normal everyday person? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think probably they don't know or care. I assume they just pop in and try to grab whoever they can. And when I say they're rare, there is some indication that it, it happens pretty regularly. And it's probably much more than we understand because a lot of people don't talk about it because of the stigma. I just meant rare in the context of sightings. Sure. A lot of people see UFOs, right. but it's a percentage of those who are actually picked up and uh, undergo this, this biomedical examination. Um, but yeah, that's a great question. And there is, I mean, there's that old story about Eisenhower being contacted and then we, we quit testing the nukes shortly thereafter, you know, maybe there is more interaction with, uh, high level humans or, or however you phrased that, but for, for just capturing and releasing and doing research on, I assume it's, it's usually people in remote areas for one, they can get in and out. Um, and it, it's probably just whoever's there, whoever's, uh, 
ripe for the pick and the low hanging fruit, so to speak. That's a good point. Well, it, it, you know, there's so many humans too, that it's the chance of, you know, if we're going on percentage of percentage high level it, humans, like, yeah. either, you know, you're, you're working yeah, with a larger, a you know, if you're just showing up in the, you know, to just tag the crop field and then you're like, Hey, let's grab that guy there. Right. It's, Probably well, not going to be a yeah. high profile. No, that's a good down here. Just, might as well just grab them. Yeah, yeah just based on yeah, sampling like and statistical error alone. Like, what are, what's the likelihood that you're going to get yeah. Beyonce, <laughs> you know, out camping <laughs> it, it in the middle of nowhere? And, you know, she's saying an Jay Z and <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, Jay Z and Patrick <laughs> Mahomes, and they're all just kicking it and I mean, getting uh, getting abducted. So. Yeah, I think there's just there's a lot of things. I mean, like there. when you look at the, you know, when you say when we evolve far enough, we start retaining those juvenile aspects, right? Like you, you keep the big head, smaller bodies. So we're, we're I'm going to butcher the word like it's neoteny or something like that. Neoteny. Oh, oh, that was perfect. oh, perfect. Yeah, he, oh. He, he googled that. That's the not phonetic. the word. Look. No, he no, didn't. No, he's he's, he's trying to prove himself right no, now. He did. That's so, good. You know, like, that would make sense to me because if they did see, you know what I mean? You, you're you going down there and you see DK Metcalf, who is like one of the biggest specimens in the NFL right now. To them, that would be archaic. That yeah. would be like, that's not yeah. ideal. This is a caveman, basically. Right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, if they're, if, if they're looking for one of the best athletes, yeah, it seems like he would be a good choice. If they're just looking to get an average of humans in general, then yeah, he's, he's going to be an outlier. They wouldn't want that. So yeah, to your point, I mean, they're probably just looking for convenience, but also a representative sample. If they're going back through different time periods and capturing people and studying them, they would want to have a, a representative sample of them. Um, yeah, I, I, I think with neoteny, it's a, an important thing to consider. And uh, I'll be giving a talk at the Scientific Coalition of UAP Studies here in a couple of weeks. And one of the heads of that organization sent me a couple of papers by a friend of his named Michael D. Swords. He was a professor and last name. Uh, wrote a couple of papers for MUFON. And it describes the exact same thing I talked about in my book with this neoteny, the pedomorphosis, where you have a retention of these juvenileized traits into adulthood and how that could help explain these physical characteristics of these aliens. He was kind of trashing the time travel model. He was very critical of it, but was describing the exact same things in the same way. Um, so I, I definitely think there's something there and, and, and they're described as, as, you know, children, childlike, uh, again, Terry Lovelace was talking about these kids out in the field running around, uh, in his book. So, yeah, I, th I think uh, it's an important thing to consider in the context of of this model and and how they actually look in these reports. Right now, let's get so that answers a lot of questions I had so far. I want to get to because I don't know, so I want to ask time travel as like as far as I know it, and I'm going to admittedly say I don't know that much, but like. Traveling. He watched Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> so, Takes a bunch of gigawatts. That's, <laughs> that's what we know. Terrible, 121 terrible gigawatts. Terrible reference for yeah. time travel. So, um, yeah. There's some good ones out there. Back to the Future <laughs> yeah. sucks. Um, but there are some pretty decent movies that, that really do try to stay true to it. Um, anyway. So no, I'm, I'm just saying, like, so as far as I know, like, if, you're saying. if you could approach the speed of light, so, like, if I left Earth and I, I traveled at the speed of light and they came back in so many years... I would be relative, like much younger than the people on earth. So I kind of traveled to the future, but 
I've never really understood how, like, what's what's the theory on traveling backwards in time? Yeah, so what you're talking about is special relativity and the twins paradox specifically, uh, which isn't a paradox at all. It's just differences in, in the rate of the passage of time and space when you're in a, a reference frame where you're traveling at a very high rate of speed. Or you can also mimic that by uh, hanging out near a black hole for a while. It right. does the same thing. Uh, but that's that's more general relativity when you're talking about the curvature of space, time, and gravitational fields. So with backward time travel, um, for a long time, people thought you had to go faster than the speed of light in order to travel back in, t- in time. But uh, it's not possible, for one. And uh, who knows if that would even happen. But most of the research that has come out since Einstein published his paper on general relativity in 1915 has focused on ways in which you could create what are called closed time-like curves. And that's what really brings you back into the past. It's where time bends back on itself. And in order to do that, something that's consistently demonstrated uh, to create these, to get them, the light cones, to bend back toward the past so that you can move locally forward in time still, but go into the global past. Um, much of the research, really, since shortly after he published this paper, has shown that with the rotation of uh, a massive or highly energetic sphing, sphing, that's not even a word, <laughs> sphere, cylinder, ring. There it is. I think I combined sphere We make up words here all the time. Yep, no it's worries. Or disc. All good. <laughs> it's, it's hard not to do sometimes. Um, but yeah, with with each of these, it, it's a consistent theme. And and we see this with you know Van Stockholm in the 1930s, the Godel model in the 1950s, both of which were uh, deemed impossible because they required infinite characteristics of the universe or the cylinder. But then you have Frank Tipler in the 1970s who showed that if you have a disk of a finite size spinning fast enough, it can create these closed time-like curves. And that's very similar to what's described with UFOs. You have a rapidly spinning or at least something on the outside like a flywheel is spinning in a high rate of speed on a disk. So there's this, this characteristic of these craft, the the form of these craft seems to indicate that they have the function of backward time travel just based on what we know about how you might create these closed time-like curves, really since Einstein published that paper in, in 1915. So I, I'm not a physicist. I don't have the ability to give you calculations or, you know, explain how we exactly. Couldn't, we, we couldn't understand them anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'd just be here um, nodding our heads. Yeah, way over our heads. Nobody could. But to your description of the, uh, you know, the, the spinning object as well, that, that sounds similar to the concept of what is the Alcubierre drive. Where it's like you have a, you would have a stationary yeah. object, probably like a, a, you know, a shaped spherical object within a, like a spinning ring. And that was, it's one of the concepts that basically like yeah. create like a time warp bubble around which that object would allow that object to move through space or time, I guess, potentially time as well. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it helps explain a lot of things about the craft, how they can move in and out of air and water. They don't create uh, vortexes behind them. There's no disturbance to the air. The wind is irrelevant. So it almost does seem like they're creating the space time bubble around them. And it also helps explain the insane G forces that they would experience on the inside of these craft. You see them shoot up at tremendous speed, like the Tic Tac dropped 30,000 feet right. in like a couple seconds, I think it was. That would destroy any biological entity on the inside of this thing. But 
if they're manipulating space-time around that craft, it could be a very slow acceleration to them, but we see it as this rapid jump up into the uh. sky, a rapid deceleration. So again, if it's if it's if they're manipulating space-time within their reference frame, it might appear different than what we see in this other reference frame as the outside observer. Well, that would expo- explain some of the rapid motions you see that you know you hear the zigzagging patterns and horizon to horizon hori- in a second. Or- yeah, that would that would account for that. Yeah, and just appearing and disappearing too. That's really commonly described in um, in UFO reports. And one of the only ways you could do that is if they are dipping in and out of the fourth dimension. If something that you're looking at in three dimensions of space suddenly disappears, it indicates it moved in the only other dimension we know of, the fourth dimension, and went through time. So I think there's a lot of things about the behavior of these craft and the the, the form of them that indicates they have this capability. So what you're saying is the UFO itself is the time machine. They're they're not like but I think the disc the discs are, yeah. I think the triangles probably come from a dark side of the moon or an underwater base. I think those were built in our time and they use them for different purposes. But I think the the discs are the actual time machine, yeah. Right. So they actually I mean make make so they're not using like some type of wormhole. They're actually just creating the time warp with their tech. Yeah. Yeah, I like that's awesome yeah, theory. That's that's what it seems. It just just based on again that history of what we know about how you might create close timeline curves. They they seem to have that same form, those characteristics. Oh, that's, that's so really, then that's really if cool. they're coming back and they're uh, you know to look at us for perhaps like a historical or an anthropological type of view. Would that imply like how? What would that imply in terms like a, a you know, a timeline model, would that be like, you do have a, is it causality or is it going to be uh are you going to have the, uh, what is the one that, uh, Stephen Hawking also talks about the, uh, chronology, chronology projection conjecture where it's, you know, it's kind of like time. It's like a huge river and no matter what you do, it's going to come out no matter what. Um, flexing some smart yeah. guy muscles here right now. <laughs> or, you know, it's just like time travel has, I, it's very, it's not very well understood yet. So, None you know, I guess would this imply that they're trying to change something or learn something? Like, how would they yeah, apply that, that knowledge? That's part of why they haven't revealed themselves, too. Yeah. Well, that's it, a, a great question. There's a couple of things to unpack there. Um, I mostly approached the question of time travel in my book in the context of the block universe. So in that model, they come back through time um, and anything that you did in the past already manifested itself in the future before you even left. Because in in the block universe, everything from the very beginning of the Big Bang to when the very last uh, atom is sucked into a black hole and the universe starts over potentially, all of those moments are already part of this massive four-dimensional block of space-time. So within that, there really is no, there's no paradoxes. There's nothing that you can do to change the past because anything you did in the past is already a part of that future before you even left, regardless of how far back you go. Um, So I mostly approached it that way. It's the most dominant model within the physics community. It's the most conventionally understood way of thinking about the universe and time travel. But then you also have the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics and the multiverse where you have these different dimensions where if you go into the past, it creates a separate timeline. There's this quantum decoherence and then you have these other timelines form where there's an alternate outcome 
in that future where if you did something it creates a whole different universe so to speak there's this butterfly effect and that really only exists in this model um and and when people talk about an interdimensional hypothesis i consider those the same thing i think what they're talking about is just this multiverse model but we're still talking about humans just humans coming from a different timeline as opposed to the same timeline in our future which is what it would be in the block universe so so really it just it's it depends on which um interpretation of the universe you subscribe to whether it be the brain universe b-r-a-n-e um the woven expanding or the many worlds interpretation so these guys are working on terminator rules <laughs> nothing you can do to change the future you just come back <laughs> and whatever you do in the past causes what happens in the future or no, potentially no fate but what yeah, you make uh, yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know there are a lot of I mentioned earlier um, there are some good uh, pop culture ways of framing this that some people like the the show Dark. It's a mm, German it's a show. Mm -hmm. I don't know if yep. you guys have seen that. It's it's dubbed. The first two seasons focus on um, the block universe. Everything self consistent. Whatever they do uh, affects the the future, the past. Everything's self consistent throughout the. Uh, Novikov self-consistency principle. But then the third uh, season, they went into the multiverse and everything gets really wacky and confusing. And the show kind of went to shit at that point, in my opinion. But um, there's there's other ones, too. There's other um, movies and TV shows that do a decent job. There's also ones that do a completely <laughs> crap job. Um, I, go, I like 12, 12 Monkeys is a good block universe time travel movie. Yeah. But yeah. Absolutely. I just watched that again uh, a couple months Phenomenal. ago. It's a great movie. Been a while. I think, um, I don't know if you've ever read the uh, the Hyperion Cantos by Dan Simmons. Have you ever read those? Probably not. No. Uh, they they pause. The it's kind of the same thing uh, in the that type of model of the universe where it's pretty much uh, time travel happens at the behest of like an advanced AI. Like we've gotten to a point where it's like AI goes back to ensure its creation kind of like terminator rules but Skynet. Um, mm. Skynet. yeah yeah but uh you know you, there's cool. you know yeah, a I'm whole sure. bunch of like moving back and forth it talks about you know humanity's uh evolution eventually like you move so far to a point where you have humans that live in different environments and we've learned to adapt to such a point you have humans that are yeah evolved to live in you know the dark the deepest parts of space where you have li you know limb elongation <laughs> um you know, become almost evolve like wings of some type propulsion or something like that. But, um, yeah. that's a, that's a one that's that kind of, that came to my head when I read about, uh, the, the way that you phrase the time travel or how you posit time travel would work within your theory. So yeah. There's, there's another one too. Um, who was the guy that was in Galatica? Gattaca? Oh, Ethan yeah, Hawke. Ethan Hawke. Yeah, yeah. That's a good movie too. Ethan Hawke. Yeah. He did a movie. It starts with yeah. An I. Are you talking about the one based um, on um, what's his face? Uh, guy wrote Starship Troopers. I can't remember his name right now. Um, maybe I don't know. I somebody like told me over and over like you got to watch this. You got to watch this, and I, and I did, and it was really good. But they did an awesome job. You can tell they had some consultants. Oh, Robert Heinlein. Yeah, I think um, I think you're uh, Robert Heinlein, the uh, the science fiction author, does a couple time travel ones, which I think kind of fit on yours as well. Um, Kind of what yeah. you do. Uh, I guess I'm sitting in front of a computer. I think, was it Predestination? Is that the one with Ethan Hawke? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was it. Yeah. 
That was it. Predestination. Yeah, the closed the closed loop. Yeah, yeah, that's they do a good job in that one too. Now, yeah, back on this subject of uh, aliens coming back to picking us up. Do you think that because when I'm thinking that you see these people with multiple, you know, abductions and reoccurring incidents with the same people, why would you would you go back just because? to see how that person ages and Follow genetic changes. Like, is that, is that all it is? Cause like mm. for me, I'm like, if you're looking for DNA and stuff like that, like if, if it's us from the future, I mean, we should age similar. Like there would be some similarities that I would imagine you could just extrapolate from the one visit. Like why the need to go and reoccur, like keep visiting the same subject. You think it would be more caught like yeah. worthwhile to go get a variety, get a variety. Well, I mean, it, it comes down to, it, and I, I'll, I don't yeah. know. I'm going to go ahead and throw that out there. I, I don't know. This is just b- based on uh, general aspects of research. I, I would answer that by saying, in, in many cases, you have cross-sectional samples. You have, uh, for instance, most of my non-UFO research, I study the eyes and how our uh, vision diminishes throughout our lifetimes. But there's also differences among different populations with regard to vision. So East Asians, for instance, upwards of 80 to 90 percent of them have juvenile onset myopia. They start losing their vision around age 9, 10 years old. Um, So a lot of my research focused on these different groups and how their cranial facial anatomy, their ocular anatomy varies among these different people. But we also look longitudinally. We want to see how one individual changes throughout their life. So how the eye and the brain interact uh, anatomically and how that relates to their vision throughout their lifetime. So if they're doing longitudinal studies on these people, it might help explain why they keep getting picked up, why they put tracking devices in them. Many report having this, you know, little thing that looks exactly like a tracking device. So if they're doing a longitudinal study, maybe they did something to that person. Maybe they're just of interest for some reason and they want to see what happens throughout their lifetime, biologically, uh, neurologically, who knows what it is they're studying. But like I mentioned earlier, you know, you could pick this person up there. You could do an entire study throughout an individual's lifetime over the course of yeah. a couple of days, mm-hmm. all in the same day, if you were ambitious enough, not a lot of coffee and cocaine, I guess. <laughs> space but cocaine if the you best come kind. back and you pick <laughs> space, space future cocaine, space cocaine, yeah, yeah. I, I assume they have some good <laughs> stuff in the future um so yeah you pick this person up when they're 15 when they're 25 when they're 50 when they're 70 and you can do all of that over the course of a couple of days and you would see the same person they're not aging you're aging um but yeah i, I would assume it's just it's some aspect of uh, a, a longitudinal study something about that growth and development process that's right. of interest to them. Now, as far as like theories about like ETs, obviously there's the, we're, we're talking about from the future, but there's also like, like, you know, other, other species on planets that just evolved and they've taken interest in our planet for whatever reason, like what, whatever it may be. What, what, uh, what do you think about that? Is there just room for room for both or what is, what's your theory on that? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't consider this model to be mutually exclusive with the extraterrestrial hypothesis or ultra terrestrials or even the simulation hypothesis. I think all of them uh, should be weighed in accordance with what little evidence exists within this field. 
Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a very good possibility that there's other life forms on other planets. Um, the fact that it happened here so quickly after it could, about 3.7 billion years ago, once we had water, once we had an atmosphere, we see life, boom, there it is. So the fact that it happened here that quickly means it probably did in other places too. The, the issue for me is just how unlikely it is that we would get an, an upright walking human right. form evolve on these planets over the course of however many billions of years they needed to form and that they would be close enough that we would find each other, that they would exist at the same time because the universe is roughly 15 billion years old. What's the likelihood that we would get humanoids close enough that are here at the same time and just slightly more technologically advanced than right. us. It's, it's a really low probability. It makes more sense that it's just humans that are more technologically advanced because they're in our future. They've had more time to develop these technologies. It's just in, in the context of the simplest solution, Occam's razor principle of parsimony. It just, it seems more logical that humans with more advanced technology are us in the future, as opposed to uh, a humanoid form that happened and develop on another planet and and we can do it with them apparently like antonio yeah. Vias Boas <laughs> yeah. favorite. One of the sex oil. we've yeah. talked about him lots of times it, it had a vagina <laughs> yeah you know like and and she's probably just doing a nasty in the past either <laughs> <laughs> oh man i think you just That's coined a, a new shirt coined, for us. yeah coined yeah. a shirt right there <laughs> But no, like, like they're obviously similar enough that they we can have sex with them. You know, something on another planet, it's far that, shot. That's a pretty yeah. specific thing. And if we, if there are hybrids, just based on the biological classification of species concept, it means they would have to be the same species if we're able to reproduce and produce viable offspring. So, I think those things should be considered too. Well, that makes sense to me because you think about it, like you were talking. You know, we evolved obviously to walk bipedal. There were side effects that came along with that, right? Like potentially short oh, yeah. gestation period, herniated discs, that type of stuff. So let's say we evolve all the way to being a short graze. Like, is there a fucking gestation period three days? How the hell would you fit that thing? Like you got a tiny body with, and you're producing this baby with a giant head out of there. It makes sense yeah. that you might have to go back in time to keep your population alive because you can't reproduce anymore. Ooh, like that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I, uh, the the big head small hole problem as we call it in anthropology <laughs> um but yeah I, I just actually wrote probably 10 to 15 pages in my new book about that very thing oh, because wow. in in many of these cases yeah we, we're already at the point where the big head small hole problem is the an it's a problem i see it regularly as a paramedic <laughs> it's terrifying when you're trying to deliver yeah. a baby in the back of an alley and it's yeah. a little hard yeah so, so we've gotten around that problem with C-sections, at least in developed countries. Upwards of 30% of women die in childbirth in, in less developed countries because of the same biological issue. In places where C-section technology is available, it may help us get around that. We just cut the baby out. But if you, if you look at the reports of, of people that have been in these large triangular craft, and, and a couple of them, Jerry Wills is one example. Terry Lovelace, again, is another example. There's They both report seeing the same thing where you have these walls of incubating fetuses with human characteristics. So it almost seems like we, we move beyond C-section and go into external gestation where we have external uteruses and we grow our babies in that capacity. If that's the case, yeah, that could help explain 
the diminutive genitalia, sort of the asexual characteristics of these more distant future humans, the greys, where we just don't reproduce that way anymore. I'm, I'm hoping we don't give up sex. I, I don't <laughs> well, think that it's not worth it's something anymore. we should ever do. Well, there's, yeah, you know, there's that, enough. That's maybe not it's a future I would want to live in. Maybe it's something where it's like the, you know, because we do have, as you coined, uh, some some coming back doing the nasty and the pasty. Um, <laughs> that's but, not me. That's Futurama. There's maybe it's one of those things where they we still have sex, but maybe we remove the, um, you know, the fertilized egg early on. And then do yeah. the rest of the gestation period in an artificial in womb. Lab, yeah, um, yeah, and that seems to be what they're doing is they're taking these these gestating fetuses from from young girls, young women, um, and then yeah, finishing that that development elsewhere. And it's it's not likely that they're doing it in you know another surrogate, a human. They're most likely doing it in uh, in these external gestation tubes uh, it really is the the test tube baby of the future i guess i mean if you look at it too like as far as evolving goes like to me that would be the safest way to have a child there's zero complications with it right and not to mention you don't have to carry yeah. it you know what i mean you don't go through any of those yeah. risks there's no risks of you know spontaneous abortion anything like that and then the mm -hmm. birthing process there's no trauma nothing like, right that's yeah. fucking cool. Another thing I, I mentioned in this this new book too is the social impact. It one of the biggest reasons why we struggle with gender equality throughout the world is because the woman has that burden of carrying the baby and and feeding the baby. They're the primary caregiver in every animal society. So it could really help with uh, gender equality in the future too if that gets outsourced to an incubation chamber and neither man nor woman has to really carry that burden. Right. Wow. Cool. That's cool. I like that. I like yeah. that theory a lot. Blew my mind. Now, uh, we're about 45 minutes right now. Uh, do we have more, some more questions? Uh, no, I all my questions got answered and then some. I got to be honest, though. I was like, I'm really enjoying this interview. It's going great. Dr. Mike, you're awesome. But when you said that you needed to go put on a hat and you came back on without an Indiana Jones hat, I was pretty disappointed. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> oh my God. The first archaeological dig I ever did, there was this huge douchebag that showed up with the Indiana Jones hat. And I shit you negative, he had the whip too. Oh, no. He was carrying the whip on his belt. And he was the biggest tool I have ever met in my entire life. And at that point, I was like, nope. Yeah. I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Even though I've wanted to a few times, I just, I can't bring myself to do it. Well, right on. Uh, so the, your, your last book was Identified Flying Saucers. You said you have a new book coming out. What was that one called? Yeah, that's just called The Extra Tempestrial Model. Um, and it, so the first book, uh, mostly kind of spelled out the science of, of why this seems to be future humans, largely based on our morphological evolution, but also these aspects of time travel that we've talked about. Um, looking at the Drake equation, Fermi paradox, like all of the astronomy, astrobiology stuff too. But there was only some mention of actual abduction cases or any type of close encounter. This book kind of flips that on its head and it um, kind of sets up the model for those that didn't read the first book, but then focuses on 15 specific case studies. 
and looks at them in the context of this extraterrestrial model, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, simulation hypothesis, ultra-terrestrials, and all of these other models to um, help explain the phenomenon, just to kind of see how they fit, to like break them down and then see whether or not they conform to this time travel model, if there's a better explanation for some of these things. So, um, yeah, it's still, you know, uh, the same the same long, strange trip. It's just uh, a different way of framing it, looking at uh, people's experiences and, and per- some pretty well-known and then also some lesser-known cases. Right, and now just one final, one final question. What do you think the best evidence we have in modern times to support your theory like is it one of the one of the videos that's been declassified or a program that's been declassified or what what would you point people to who don't really know where to go yeah i mean i think um as far as like something tangible that's been validated uh, the tic tac videos mm-hmm. is one of the few things we have because the department of defense here in the u.s acknowledged the reality of these and has been sort of shifting us toward disclosure more broadly. But that aspect of these accelerations and decelerations, I think it's the best way of explaining those G-forces and how it's whoever's piloting these things. If there is a pilot, there could be AI involved as well. But if there is a a human, humanoid, some sort of biological entity piloting these things, their manipulation of space-time in and around this craft, I think, is... um, a good indication. But my favorite abduction account is that of uh, Amy Rylance in Australia. And I'll be talking about that one a little bit more along with some others in my workshop at Contact in the Desert. Uh, the lecture that I'm giving kind of spells out the the theory as a whole. And then in the workshop, we kind of it's, it's more based on this new book where we dive into some of these case studies and sort of pick them apart and see uh, how they fit. But I, I feel like that one it just screams time travel. This the first time I read about that, I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is, <laughs> this awesome. is it. Like this, that's exactly what happened to her. It's the only way I think that that experience, the way she describes it and what the cops reported and what the hospital staff reported. I think it's one of the only ways it can be explained really. Amazing. All right. Now, if besides contact in the desert, June 25th, to 28th, uh, where can people find your work? You have a website, socials, yeah, um, got a website. It it was an abbreviated version of the book title. I'd fly obj.com. The URL still works, but I uh, got a new URL. It's just my name, michaelpmasters.com, because it's easier than I'd fly obj, which isn't even <laughs> yeah. a word. Yeah. <laughs> People are like, well, can you spell that? I'm like, I just need to change this. Yeah. So I finally did. <laughs> yeah. Um, so michaelpmasters.com. I got the the Twitter the Instagram where I watch people's drunken dance parties. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> got the uh, the Facebook. So yeah, all of the requisite uh, social media accounts. So yeah, and I try to I try to respond to everybody. It's not always possible, but awesome. do my best. Right on. Now, really quickly, uh, before we let you go, can we get a? I'm Doctor Michael Masters, and you're listening to Alien Theorist Theorizing. Absolutely. I'm Dr. Michael Masters, and you're listening to Alien Theorist Theorizing. Beautiful. Sound way cooler than all of us. Yep. (laughs) 